We began 2022 with a new theme entitled Discovering the Mission of God. It's broken up into four sections. One is discovering the mission of God through Israel. Second, discovering the mission of God through Jesus. And then third, we're going to look at discovering the mission of God through the gospel itself. And then we'll end the year with discovering the mission of God through discipleship. We've started by looking at the book of Genesis as God begins his plan to redeem mankind. And we're in Genesis chapter 4 today, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 4 all the way through Genesis 11. But I want to begin by introducing uh, a very important day that is tomorrow. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This is a day in which our nation pauses to remember the work of racial justice that Martin Luther King Jr. worked on for all of his life, in fact, gave his life for. Martin Luther King was born on January 15, 1929, and was assassinated on April the 4th, 1968. I still remember that day well. What I want to refer to today is a letter that King wrote during what was called the Birmingham Campaign. This occurred in uh, the spring of 1963, and Martin Luther King was jailed on April the 12th and would remain in a Birmingham jail through the 20th. During that time, King wrote a letter to some of the local ministers in Birmingham. King had been accused of being an agitator. And what King wanted to do is basically go back to the Bible and to explain why he was fighting for racial justice in America. King's father was a minister. His grandfather on his maternal side was a minister. And at this time, he was the minister or the preacher for the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He wrote a fairly long defense of his work in trying to bring about racial justice in America. As he explained his reasons for coming to Birmingham, he went back to kind of describe some of his experiences. And I want you to notice what he said. In the midst of a mighty struggle to read our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between body and souls, the sacred and the secular. And then notice what he says. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that time that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideals and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Dr. King then goes on to describe basically what happened in the book of Acts. He says, wherever the early uh, Christians, or whenever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them of being 
disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. All you have to do is turn over to the book of Acts, whether it's Acts 13, 14, or whether it's Acts 16 through about Acts 20. You see Paul, sometimes with Barnabas, sometimes with Silas, being accused of these very actions. He says, but they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated. I love that term. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. And I would add to that many other things, including a lot of slavery that was going on at that time. But Dr. King ends at least this section with a very simple phrase. Things are different now. I want to take that, that little phrase that he ends this section of his letter from the Birmingham jail. And I want us to go back and kind of use that as a launching point for looking at what happened to the world once Adam and Eve was cast out of the Garden of Eden. Things are different now. In our second lesson in this series, we ended by looking at what had happened because of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, So the Lord God banished him, talking about Adam, and of course Eve was included in this, from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he had been taken. You know, he was supposed to work in the garden. Now he's having to work the ground just to be able to get enough food to eat. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And thus began the consequences of the fall. Basically what you have in Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 4 and going all the way through Genesis chapter 11, is kind of this increasing uh, increase, or increasing uh, uh, amount of wickedness coming into the world. We begin with Genesis chapter 4 as things are different now. The text says that Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord I brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. This is not simply a discussion of how Adam and Eve began to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, they're obviously doing that. But instead, this sets us up for the next step in the fall. We all know what happened to Cain and Abel. Cain became a farmer. Now, he began to you know, try to get produce from the ground. Abel, on the other hand, became a shepherd. He was more focused on sheep and goats and animals like that. And of course a time came when both of them came before God to offer a sacrifice. If you remember your early stories from the book of Genesis, Cain brought from the crops of the field. But it's interesting that Abel, when he brings from his flock, the Bible says that he brought from the firstlings, from 
from the best that he had. Cain didn't offer the best. Abel did. And because of that, God paid respect to Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. The end result was that Cain became very angry. And even though God tried to persuade him not to take any rash decisions or make any rash decisions, we know that he did. And that he invited his brother Abel out to the field and he killed him. Even though Adam and Eve had already started dying, as they're expelled from the garden, from the tree of life, the, the dying process had begun in their body. But here for the first time, a human being dies instantly. You may recall how that God came and, and asked uh, Cain a very serious question. And it is, you know, where's your brother? And of course, Cain's response is, my, my brother's keeper. And God's response is, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse. You see that fall as it's being uh, extended. You're driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You say, here's a man who tilled the ground. And now the ground speaks out against him. When you work the ground, it will no longer live, uh, yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And what's fascinating is that all at once we go from Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit to Cain, as Martin Luther King would say, things are different now, committing murder. More specifically, fratricide, where he killed his own brother. I mean... When you, when you think about murdering someone you don't know, that's one thing. But to kill your own flesh and blood. And so we see sin beginning to just rapidly increase. You go further into that chapter and you have a, another strange story. It's one of Cain's descendants. His name is Lamech. And Lamech is the first polygamist in the Bible. And you have a song that Lamech sings to his two wives. Notice, Lamech said to his wives, uh, Adah and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. And then you hear you have the song. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Here he father, uh, follows after his grandfather's uh, uh, example. He commits murder. But notice, it's more than just murder. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Cain had been afraid that someone would find him and would kill him because he had become a murderer. And God had basically issued a warning. Anyone who kills Cain, I'll avenge seven times. Well, Lamech takes God's pronouncement and just makes it so much larger and says, if God's going to avenge Cain seven times, I'll be avenged 77 times. And as Martin Luther King would say, Things are different now. In fact, what's happened now is not just murder, but now vengeance. This attitude that, you know, I just won't kill one, but I'll kill 77 if I have to. The next process in the text is a fascinating one. I think sometimes we miss it, but when we turn to Genesis chapter 5, you have Seth's line. And of course, Seth is the son that's born to Adam and Eve to replace Abel. And among that line is one by the name of Enoch. 
And Enoch is special in the history of the Bible. You'll see why here in a moment. But the text says when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah, the man who would eventually be the oldest man to ever live, 969 years. But notice this. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years, had other sons and daughters, and then you have something that's fascinating. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years, and Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. I don't know if you've ever paused for a moment to think, why? Why did God take Enoch away? Why literally translate him straight from earth without going through death to heaven itself. Only Elijah, of all the people in the Bible, ever had that to happen. I think what's going on here is this further progression in the fall. Again, as Martin Luther King would say, things are different now because what we find is the righteous disappear. You know, there's a passage found over in the book of Isaiah. And it's a passage that I remember the first time I came across it. It just kind of stunned me. All of us have experienced probably some form of tragedy. Some loved one that's been taken well before he or she should have been taken. And of course, any time a tragedy like that happens, we always ask questions. Why did God take my loved one? Especially those who are taken at a young age. And yet you turn over to Isaiah, and Isaiah says, The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away. Notice, very similar language to what you had over in Genesis in regards to Enoch. The righteous are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. And of course, we're all the worst because of it. Because as God takes the righteous away, we're left with you know more and more wickedness here. Genesis 6, 1-3, as we continue to progress in this, this fall of mankind, we come to a strange text. It's one that's been debated a lot, and, and I'm not going to try to explore the debate. I'll express my opinion, and you can either accept it or reject it. That's no problem at all. We, we all kind of struggle with this text. But it says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Interesting phrase there. Every other time in the Old Testament, this phrase means angels, heavenly beings. And so that's why it creates problems here, because notice what the sons of God did. They saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And the end result was that the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, their days will be a hundred and twenty years. I think there's two possible interpretations of this last one. Their, their days will be a hundred and twenty years. Some people think that this is the shortening of the length of life. That prior to this, they were living way up into the you know 800s and 900s like Methuselah did. But now God's basically going to shorten man's uh, uh, days to 120 years. I think there's a second possibility here. It's the one that I lean toward. And that is God saying, I'm going to put up with man about 120 more years. And then I'm going to bring an end to him. 
You know, it's interesting, the CEV translation translates this text this way. More and more people were born until finally they spread all over the earth. And some of their daughters were so beautiful that supernatural beings came down and married the ones they wanted. Again, there's two or three possible interpretations of these sons of God marrying the daughters of men. I personally believe that what happens is that sin now erupts into the heavenly realm. And what you have is angels. Angels who look at these beautiful women and take the form of men and come down and marry them. And so, once again, I think, as Dr. King would say, things are different now. Why? Because heaven itself is invaded by sin. It's fascinating, though, over in the book of Jude, uh, verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority. Jude looks back, and I think he's looking back to this event. And he said there were angels who abandoned, notice the language here, but abandoned their proper dwelling. God had given them responsibilities. They had roles to play in creation, but they abandoned it. And notice the end result was that these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And so we see sin go from eating fruit to killing one's brother to, to vengeance and saying, if you harm me, I'll kill 77 of you. To God pulling the righteous people like Enoch out so that they wouldn't have to suffer because of what's happening in his creation. And then to heaven itself, seeing sin begin to knock on its doors. And of course you know the end result of this. One of the saddest verses to me in all the Bible is Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. This is one of the most powerful statements of what happens when the relationship between God and, and mankind is ruptured. As God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, and that intimate fellowship is broken, the end result is that sin just begins to explode to the point that finally God looks and he sees how great it is that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart, think about that, every inclination, Every thought is only evil all the time. Things are different now. And it's different in this way. Every inclination and thought that man has is evil. And of course, God makes a decision. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, you have a very similar text. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. You get this amazing description of mankind. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. A passage that Paul would quote in Romans chapter 2 to describe why both Jew and Gentile needs the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. So God's decision is, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret 
an amazing comment about God. A God who had regrets. He said, I regret that I made them. But then you get this little glimmer of hope. I think sometimes we think that Noah, you know, was this incredibly righteous man. I, I, I think Noah was a sinner, but he is a sinner who had not forgotten, forgotten God. And the text says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Most of us remember the story. God told him to build an ark, and he warned them that, that he's going to be, bring a flood upon the earth. And God brought all the animals to him to be saved in that ark. And then it began raining. And the end result in a year's time is that everything on the earth, everything that had the breath of life in it, had died. And God started over. But what's fascinating about when he started over is what he states in Genesis 8. Noah, his sons, and his daughter-in-laws come out of the ark and of course, Noah offers a sacrifice to God. And when God smells it, he responds. But notice his response. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. But then he reiterates what he had said in Genesis chapter 6. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. You know, we've been using that phrase from Dr. King's speech, but I've got to change it this time. Instead of saying things are different now, we have to admit that things are not different now. That man is still the sinner that he was before the flood, after the flood. And of course, it's at this point that God begins to look in a very different direction. Now, of course, that had been God's plan all along, but we see that as it's revealed in the text. Every inclination of man is still sinful. And so God has to address the problem of sin. One of the things that's fascinating to me in this particular text is that he says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. I like the voice. The voice translates it this way. Even though every thought of the mind and inclination of the heart I mean, it's, it's not just here. It's here and here. And he says, it's set on evil. And of course, that's what we, we're fighting. Here we are thousands of years later. And we're still fighting against what Satan's trying to do in my life and in your life. And of course, one of the things that he states is that it's from childhood. It's from childhood. Jesus, when he, he was... Uh, encountering people who were resisting him. And, and they were criticizing because uh, they felt like he was eating with, uh, and his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. And he responded by saying, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's not what goes in them. It's not eating with unwashed hands. But it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. I mean, you look at this list and you're like, wow. And notice what Jesus says. All of these evils come from inside. And that's what defiles us. And that's why God, in redeeming us, has to begin with our minds and our hearts. It's the first thing he has to change. And again, let me remind you that 
begins in our childhood. But that's why it's so important. You know, sometimes I, I would like to say to parents of, of young children, you know, uh, take every opportunity, every opportunity you can get to instill God's Word and, and, and those values that are found in it in the hearts and minds of your children. You know, when I think of the fact that growing up, my parents believed in, in taking us to church. I mean, we were at church Sunday morning. We were at Sunday school. We were at worship. Back then, we had church on Sunday nights. We were there every Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school. I mean, gospel meetings. You name it, my parents believed in having us there. And it's what shaped my life. And when I think of all the social media today and all that our young people are, are hearing and seeing, Boy, more than ever before, it becomes so important for us from their earliest days to instill God's Word in them. Deuteronomy would put it this way. Impress them. Impress God's commands on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you're driving in your car, when you lie down before you go to bed, read them Bible stories, when you get up, teach them how to pray. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. You set the example for your kids. And then write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Make it evident what's important to you. You know, if someone were to ask me, what one word of advice would you give to new parents? I would simply put it this way. Make sure you're part of the church's life. Make, your, make sure your kids are a part of every opportunity that is available to them. You know, there's, there's other ways of, of, of course, instilling biblical values in our, in our kids. Their Christian schools, their opportunities for kids to be involved in other spiritual activities. I think the wonderful programs that we have here at Hendersonville during the summer that teaches them God's Word. Make sure they're a part of all of them. And then, of course, I was blessed to go to a Christian college. I mean, there's just so many opportunities. Now, do you have to do that? No, I, I had a son that went to Tennessee Tech, and let me tell you that the Christian Student Center there was a fantastic source of encouragement and spiritual development in his life, and that's true of so many of other educational institutions. But encourage your kids to take advantage of every opportunity that comes their way. Genesis 11 ends with a fascinating story. It begins with these words. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in uh, Shinar. Shinar is simply Babylonia. And they settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, and I want you to notice the focus here. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Wow. Things are different now. And what you see is, as people began to multiply and spread upon the earth, is that God was nowhere to be found. I'm so reminded of a story in the New Testament that Jesus told. It's a story about a rich farmer. And he says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant, uh, abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall, notice the words underlined, 
what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, and of course what follows is quite amazing. It's what most people in America call the American dream. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, isn't that the American dream? And yet God's response to it was very different. I love the Passion's translation of it. The same thing will happen to all of those who fill up their lives with everything but God. And that's what we find as the fall begins to just, just explode and, and people become more and more wicked. They become less and less focused on God. Things are different now. They continue to be so. They're different than, than 20, 30, 40 years ago. I look at the world today and sometimes I don't even recognize it. But if there's a message that we need to take to the world is that yes, as Dr. King said, things are different now. But they don't have to stay that way. They don't have to stay out that way and, and it begins by not letting them stay that way in your life. I don't know what kind of relationship you have with Jesus, but I want to simply urge you, it's time for us to be different and to be in a, different in a way that magnifies and glorifies God. And if we here at Hendersonville can help you in learning to be a follower of Jesus Christ, putting your faith in him, being baptized, or simply trying to develop a, a pathway of discipleship that draws you closer and closer to him and blesses your family, we want to be able to do it. Please let us know how that we can. Uh, you can call us here at the office. You can come visit me in the office. I'd be glad to share what, what his message to all of us is. Again, thank you for joining us today. And let's begin our end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time together. And Father, as we continue to work through your word, and we hear these incredible stories from Israel's history, which is also our history. We pray, Father, that we can see what's happened in the past, not repeat it, not move away from you. But, Father, because of Jesus Christ, move towards you, allowing you to remake us into your image, allowing you to purify our hearts and our minds so that every inclination is only godly. Father, we look forward to the day when that's literally true. In the meantime, keep us in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, and I hope you have a great week.